0: Hello, and welcome to The Canadian Story, where we discuss what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. So Alex, uh, I'm especially interested today to talk to you about energy and the future of energy. You're uh, you're somewhat of an expert on this topic, or becoming one at least. And um, we recently had uh, Ben Woodfinden on here to talk about uh, more of the you know, ethereal and political theory side of why we love Canada. But, I, I mean, you, it's its so interesting. So many of the people that are joining us here are immigrants to Canada, but they, they are passionately in love with our country. And I'd like to know, to start off with, the question I ask every uh, guest is, what, what do you love about Canada?
1: I love, uh, in a dry
0: sense, the upward mobility. Uh, in a very simple sense,
1: I think Canada does a lot of things well, and I think the thing Canada does the best of every any country in the world Is it's integration of new canadians uh it's opportunity for them to find their ground uh in their own communities and to create that door for the next generation and and you know my my parents are, are not unique at all in that they sacrificed a lot to come here they forego you know opportunities for their own career advancement so that myself my sister my brother uh can achieve higher things and i've and i've had those doors open for me both because of you know their investments in me and the you know public education system our university system and how people respond to us you know i i talk to peers in europe and america and they have different degrees of experiences as, as a new arrival uh but all of them pale in comparison to the welcomingness of, of i've here in this country and and that for me is is the biggest thing to be proud of
0: and i like that we welcome people regardless of when they got here right we're we're welcoming to all people and uh whether they've been here for a long time or they just arrived your Canadian identity is not attached to history. It's mm-hmm. attached to choice.
1: I'd like to, yeah, absolutely. And I'd like to add two things there. Uh, I, I think the first is that, you know, when Americans talk about their success in integrating immigrants, they'll, you know, they'll pick a few high flyers and say, look at this billionaire investor or, or inventor. In Canada, we have a lot more pride in very low level, what we would might call just run of the mail, salt of the earth. Communities like Cambridge, you know, I was driving by, we had, you know, there's a Southern Muslim uh, or Islamic community center and things like that. You know and, and i don't know anyone there but i'm confident those are people who own small businesses restaurants grocery stores trucking companies and so forth and they just contribute to the vibrancy of, of cambridge and every other community across canada um and and the second thing is that it doesn't force us to choose you know in america especially you will it, it, during tensor periods like this folks are encouraged or in, in in one way or another to minimize their foreign identity you know but but in canada we don't have that um Partly because we're small. I mean, if you look at you know the you know FIFA or, or something, there's no can- team Canada to cheer for in the men's at least. Obviously, in the women's is a very different story. Um, so every Canadian all of a sudden reaches back to the roots, whether those roots are five years ago or 200 years yes. ago, and they're cheering for England or or well, Italy we got to find a sports or Russia. team. Right? <laughs> yes. Um, so it's just those little things. I think is is one of the many ways that we're special compared to some of the other countries in integrating new Canadians.
0: I love it. So, why don't you introduce yourself uh, to the listeners and tell us a bit about what you do for your work and some of your personal passions, and then we'll uh, we'll go into. I think what's the most exciting about this particular podcast is I think you have some pretty uh, well thought out mm-hmm. visions for what the Canada's energy future could well, that's be. A very generous description.
1: Um, so, uh, thank you. My name is uh, Alex Simakov. As as we've entered, I'm an immigrant to Canada. I came here in 2001 uh, from Russia originally. And uh, I went to McGill University. I've been involved with the Conservative Party of Canada for my entire adult life. Um, I've worked for several elections, provincial, federal, and, and even municipal. Um, of the relevant highlights, I, I worked as a policy advisor on energy to Minister Greg Rickford, Ontario's current Minister of Energy, North Development, Mines, and the Indigenous Affairs. Uh and currently I work as an associate with the energy and environment practice at the Sussex Strategy Group. Uh so I primarily focus on energy needs, um, especially on electricity generation and distribution. Uh but we have a pretty broad range from industrial consumers who have very high energy purchases to um uh, First Nations projects that are trying to get more integrated into our economic system and uh and energy system in particular. So we have a pretty broad range and, and I I'm quite privileged Unlike a lot of, I would say, uh, consultants in my field, I get to specialize in that one area um, and I get to work in that full-time and I'm not jumping around between a healthcare file and an education file or a manufacturing file. And uh, We get to dig pretty deep and and we have a really strong team, Um, certainly definitely one of the best in Canada on on the electricity side. And um, we're fortunate to work with some of the largest utilities like Toronto Hydro or or Hydro One. We work with um, uh, generators like Northland Power, uh, we work with uh, a lot of smaller startups, even like Peak Powers you know, is, is, is a really exciting client and they do distribution. We have a hydrogen client, small
0: modular reactor
1: in the nuclear space, so pretty broad range. And you and I have had some of these conversations. And, yes, and well, I mean, a fan.
0: <laughs> I'm a huge fan of your perspective on these things. And uh, I think Canada has proven itself to be an energy, arguably superpower. Mm-hmm. And especially if you consider our per capita production and things like that, we'll probably have one of the best hydro systems in the world. But, but uh, you know, there's this, I don't know, maybe it's a mythos out there right now that Canada's falling behind on this. And I would like to encourage our listeners to, to hear what you have to say mm-hmm. about what the future of Canada economically from an energy perspective could be. And then maybe what you what direction you think we should take?
1: Right, right. Um, and you hit the nail on the head. We are undergoing very much a transition in the in the outlook of our energy sector um, over the past couple of decades. Canada has has benefited tremendously from our substantial uh, petroleum reserves. Uh, processing, extracting, and, and exporting those has brought great wealth to all of our country, not just not just the parts of Alberta and Saskatchewan where it's localized. But that money is filtered in uh, through government spending and investment and, and finance law and so forth, and it's helped. Uh, achieve a lot of the prosperity we, we're fortunate to have today um, and in the conservative party this is obviously a very hot topic we are the party of the oil sands uh, one way or another and we are very passionately involved and invested in the future of the oil patch and and I think there's a lot of animosity around things like foreign interference and and environmental uh, activists who are who are adamantly against uh, oil and gas and I think we have this debate as to whether, you know, our, our side as conservatives or, or pro-oil and gas will say, you know, we have one of the cleaner and certainly human rights-wise, certainly one of the most upstanding systems we have, uh, are constantly investing in, in having cleaner extraction and processing processes. And if you look at natural gas, especially as an opportunity to displace coal, you know, they very important and so forth. And, and these are pretty well-rehearsed talking points. For me, I'm a bit more... Uh, bearish, I, I would say, on, on the prospects for petroleum in general, uh, certainly not limited to Canada. I think that the clean energy, uh, whether renewables, hydrogen, uh, nuclear, uh, etc., are a lot more promising and a lot more imminent than than some skeptics believe. Um, so for that reason, I, I think we as a country need to think critically about transitioning from oil and sands, I don't think it's a question about a government supporting or not supporting oil and sands production at this point. The market doesn't care, right? And, and you have we've discussed, you know, for example, stocks and yes, um, yeah. some companies, <laughs> uh, some oil sands producers have a lower marginal cost than others on the per barrel, but none of them match what we're
0: getting in the Gulf. You know, none of no. them are matching
1: what we're doing in Persia or Iraq, uh, Kuwait, and so forth. Even Russia
0: or what's happening in Dakota and the Dakotas with fracking as well. right? Thank you,
1: and and, and for me, that's really the death bell for for, for oil and gas. Historically, what's What's driven the oil sector any, in any country isn't the sixty dollar barrel. It's it's that hope of getting that hundred dollar a barrel or you know one forty, and that's re- when things are really going. And I remember visiting Calgary during some of those peak oil periods, and oh, folks it's boom were, town we were just throwing <laughs> lobsters at each other. It <laughs> was a, it was a, a different world. Um, yep, yep. And and you're right in that a lot of producers can be profitable at, at sixty a barrel, but that's that's not really the same thing, you know. And, and it's kind of following, I believe, a similar trajectory in unique ways to. Co- coal is undergoing
0: commodities or, do this right is they they have they they're less fluid market wise so they have their boom and bust cycles are more mm-hmm. intense i find than perhaps financial and in- financial instruments or things like that
1: they do have the boom and bust but sometimes they do go into secular decline yes there, there was a book on uh, cotton i can't remember what it was and, and they were talking about the cotton industries around liverpool and manchester and, and the wealth that that had generated for that part of england and and the empire and uh it, it follows their decline from this this era of absolute wealth and they were documenting quotes from various insiders and investors and industrialists. Oh, this is a boom and bust cycle. We're in the we're in the bust cycle, bus cycle right now, right and now, right. the bust cycle kind of kept going and going. And <laughs> they started pawning furniture. Right, you know, and they're like, oh, well, well.
0: And there's something unique, and I say this is an Albertan about experiencing a mass influx of wealth, mm-hmm. and then having that taken from you. It it does something to the psyche that I think not a lot of other economic activity does. Yeah. Yeah. Losing a manufacturing sector, I can imagine, would be maybe a similar feeling, but but I don't I don't think there's anything quite like the commodity boom bust. And then like you said, waiting for the next boom and maybe there's it almost comes. like a spiritual element to it as well. Like we've been blessed with with this,
1: you know, um resource as a country and and um there's this feeling of frustration that and, and it's very valid in that for for better part of a decade there's been activists who have tried to prevent pipeline expansion and so forth. And and that's definitely a concern and we need to address that, um, you know, and, and hopefully we will have, you know, things like Keystone XL has an opportunity now to, to be revived. Trans Mountain is humming Happening, away-ish, yeah. <laughs> I guess, hopefully. I mean, COVID,
0: it's harder to go protest, apparently. That, <laughs> I don't know. No, that's not true. <laughs>
1: um, but, but yeah, so, so for me, for me, I think it's, I want to look at the positives instead. I don't want to fight for the next, you know, decade of, or you know, f- scraps of oil. Uh, I think we need to be focused on extracting that value as best we can, but I think we need to start doing, and, and this is what the oil sands major is already doing, like Shell and so forth and Suncor, they're investing in alternative technologies. The skill set you have in the oil sands from both a capital experience and, and a labor experience has a wonderful synergy with a lot of the things we're going to need to transition to a, a fossil-free future, as, as everyone insists we need to do. And, and I want to reiterate one point that I think gets lost Maybe only in conservative circles. I think it's actually percolated <laughs> everywhere else. This is no longer like a, a a fight of like you know there's the pro, f- oil sands or or pro petroleum or versus the anti petroleum. Like the whole world has kind of moved beyond this. People you are
0: basically at, like, this is inevitable. This is this, is this is this done. Thing. The door yeah.
1: is closed. I mean, you're looking at Blackstone or or you know you're looking at the world's largest hedge funds and investment funds in, China and China, high finance. Everyone, yeah. The door is closing on on you know, um, fossil fuels as a growth area and 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 you're right we we are going to see continued demand growth um in in parts of south asia and east asia africa and so forth but that will that will be enough to suck up some surplus demand but it, it gets back to the fracking any you're not going to get to
0: 140 you're never going to get back to it you're
1: never going to back to 100 you know if you if we go past 80 i would be surprised that's a pleasant that'll be a very pleasant day but uh, the point is now we have one month time to commission you know several millions of barrels effectively Of fracking throughout the states, (laughs) right? And we have a lot of countries like Russia, Argentina is looking at. They're looking to get all of that out. Get in on that, right? Uh, Offshore Brazil has barely started. They have some insane volumes. Eventually, we're going to start tapping into the Arctic, uh, you know, underground reserves there. So. there was a long-standing fear that we'd run out there of was oil. Peak oil. Like, that was opposite. kind of it's a peak demand now. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, like they yeah. were
1: very wrong. There was no peak oil. <laughs> well, I don't know no if oil. this
0: was the same for you in university, but like that was a big thing when I was in university. People were like, "Oh, we're gonna hit peak oil and civilization will collapse."
1: No, no, I was, I was, it was, it was in this century for me. So we had like <laughs>
0: there was more reserves that had been found, and, and right, a few, right, I'm a few years aren't that <laughs> right, much. I'm, true, I'm, true. I'm teasing.
1: <laughs> I, you're right, right. I mean, yeah. and and that's what makes it difficult, and I think it builds the skepticism of these forecasts of like, oh, well, here's where the economy economy is going. Like, we've been hearing these things from like the Club of Rome for decades of completely wrong, completely inaccurate predictions that have never materialized, like peak oil being a yes. great example. And that does build a, a lot of skepticism, I think, of, of people who are in this sector and who livelihoods depend on it, right? I, I think it...
0: Yeah, it's, it's really hard to convince, I forget who said this, but it's really hard to convince someone of something when their their income depends on it. Not yeah, being true. It's, the mortgage payment yeah, depends exactly. on it, right? And then, you know, you have folks that
1: are can be a bit pretentious in that argument of like, excuse me, oil is done. What are you even doing with a hard hat and a shovel? Like, go home. That's disgusting, right? It's just, it's, it's a very condescending attitude towards a lot of people who- Meanwhile,
0: they fill up their tanks. Meanwhile, you know, they fill up their and tanks. And warm their and, homes. And
1: You know, you see the uh, acute examples of, of Extinction Rebellion having a diesel generator <laughs> on their feet, you know, and, and things like that. And, and we get lost in those weeds, but that's not important. No, what, what's important well, is, what is the
0: What is the macro trend here? Where are we going? You. Right,
1: what, what's important here is that, we have an amazing skill set of engineers and, and laborers, you know, in the most basic term, who are capable of reapplying their skills with pretty minimal training. We're not asking hard, roughnecks to go learn coding, right? We're asking them to pick up a different set of tools, and that could require some training, and there's a role for the state in that. But ultimately, what we are going to want to see is a couple of things. Um, the emergence of solar and, and wind as cost-competitive with natural gas is today. This isn't right. a— this isn't, oh, it's coming any day now, guys. Like, it's right now. I mean, an interesting story for me was in Texas, uh, a state senator there had proposed a tax on renewable wind sources or renewable solar sources to protect natural gas because the natural gas sector is saying, we're going to lose. We're going to start we, we, losing. We can't, can't produce to this level, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and he and and this is even at the extremely low natural gas prices, right? So that's important to remember here. And I think that's this is the gonna, lowest we've ever seen them. I think, and I think it's going to stay like this yeah. for, for a while too. You're right. Um, it, they are around the world, and there's huge spreads, but we don't have to get into that between Asia and what they'll yeah, pay for natural right. gas. <laughs> the point being is is there is a nascent movement for, forget a coal. Like coal is dead now. Natural gas is starting to fight for for its life. Uh, Which th- is
0: funny because it was kind of projected as the salvation of these large projects, right? Yeah, as a
1: transition fuel, but <laughs> that transition is <laughs> coming happening. to an end yeah. much quicker than we thought. Um, I remember looking at this space maybe, you know, five, ten years ago and we had these ways where when oil got expensive, renewables became competitive because, well, compared to you know, well, it makes sense. Now we've had a year plus of, of you know, near record low oil prices and renewables are like, we don't care. We, we, there's, we're not competing. We're going to win. We're yeah. just <laughs> a better technology. Like uh, what people don't forget is an EV is an electric vehicle is the basic physics and the engineering of it mean it is inherently a better engine than an internal combustion engine. And a engine. simpler engine. And a simpler engine. It requires less repair, requires less parts, less maintenance. There's really no strong argument. Better acceleration. We can go on for better <laughs> braking. I mean, you know, it integrates braking that actually
0: brings energy into your uh, ends, yes, you your battery right away. Yeah.
1: You know, so so things like that are happening, and and I think the first step, and this is all rhetorical and aspirational, but we need to stop fighting this rear guard action. The battle is over. We, we, I feel sometimes like. Certain members of in our party and our movement are like those Japanese soldiers in the 1950s, you
0: know, in South Pacific Islands. We, we, we must maintain oh, okay, yes, still fighting yes, for right? the emperor, right?
1: Like <laughs> a decade after World War II is over, yeah. and, and, um, and I don't want us to be in that position, right? I, I, I think we need to look at people, not jobs, if that makes sense, right? The people of Alberta or the people of Saskatchewan and rural workers do have opportunities to create new growth uh you know solar and wind are are very over not overdone but but well acknowledged there there's a lot of other things that uh, I want to touch on as well one is uh, one is hydrogen um, i'm speaking this thursday at the hydrogen business uh, council that they're having a, co- a two day conference I'm talking about the ways the government can can in ontario can help incentivize that um and and for for readers i think they might have some background on that hydrogen is it works really well in certain cases but not in others it doesn't necess- it's never going to beat evs for private vehicles it, it's just not as efficient the, a big obstacle with hydrogen is it consumes electricity to create it and then it consumes electricity to revert it back to electricity right so if you could just do it with electricity you're just going to do it yeah. with an ev right where it makes sense is a couple of unique places um the biggest obstacle with EVs is charging. A lot of people don't want to wait 30 minutes to charge the no, vehicle. No, true. And there's going to be a lot of improvements in the efficiency and range of EVs. But there's a very there's a ceiling to how fast we can improve the charging rate. If you charge much faster than we currently, it's just going to explode. Right. They already explode sometimes, right? We're trying to minimize the explosions. Hydrogen isn't <laughs> that problem, despite it exploding once in a while. It's it's actually safer for most of the industrial commercial purposes we use it for. So instead of having to recharge, say. Uh, an excellent example of where hydrogen makes the most sense is in uh, logistics and warehousing. So you can't use gas in a in a warehouse obviously, right? No. You can't have any emissions. So EVs and hydrogen are your options. If you have a f- fleet of forklifts, that means you need to pretty much take have two fleets, one is operating while the other one is charging. Right. Which is which is which wasteful. not tenable. Right. So you you can you can do hydrogen is a lot faster and obviously zero emissions. Same thing with underground mines. Uh, that's even better because you don't necessarily want to have to run cabling through every corner of your mine or, or underground operation uh, if you could just have a completely detached or you know, wire-free uh, hydrogen underground-powered uh, uh, vehicle. Long-haul trucking, I think, is especially where we're going to see in Canada the best opportunity for hydrogen. Um, it's the same question as if you're long haul trucking from you know Toronto to, to Vancouver, you're not going to want to stop a couple of times to to, to charge up. No, that, that's terrible. <laughs> so you, you're going to use hydrogen, and I think that's the best place where we can see the same jobs of people who are working on you know ice uh, or internal combustion engine uh, vehicles can work in hydrogen powered vehicles as well. There's not that's not a we're not being displacing them by programmers. You still really need a lot of people
0: of with mechanics, wrenches, mechanics
1: yeah. there on site. Retrofitting the existing, uh, retrofitting our existing fleets, installing charging stations along the route, maintaining those, and so forth. Um, but one thing that I think green zealots or, or green activists are not very forthright is this impression that we can just cre- all, transition all these old economy, industrial, fossil fuel-heavy jobs to new jobs. Right. Th- that's not true because at the end of the day, you really are not requiring the same labor demand for these new technologies we're discussing as you used to. That's because just they're the simpler, they're simpler. They don't break down as often, right? The the, the fueling cycle is cheaper. You don't need as much logistics, etc., etc. But and you don't need to mine a hydrogen. No, you don't need a machine <laughs> does a lot of that work, right? right. I mean, a coal yeah. plant you would have guys going down there with hard hats and shovel. With the with an electrolyzer, it's it will be a large facility. But machines do almost all the work. You'll yeah. have highly skilled engineers on site, but there's not a guy with a hard hat and a, and a pickaxe as you might picture for for your old fashioned coal mine. So. We want to be mindful that not all of the people who are going to be who are losing out and are losing out right now in the from the quote unquote old industrial fossil fuel economy are going to just seamlessly transition. We have to accept that there can going to be some losses. The worst thing to do is to resist this transition and think we can save those jobs. Those jobs, in many cases, are, are tragically gone. Um, much like people lost jobs as uh, you know, riding horse
0: horse drawn carriages, or uh, once upon you know, a time. Be, be, you know shoeing blacksmiths had a quite a booming horseshoeing yeah. business you know or wha-
1: whatever that thing was where they knocked on people's windows in factory towns to wake them up before alarm clocks right yeah tragic that we <laughs> lost that job i don't know what it was called but like you know those people beca- did other things and and so will the canadians who, who are being displaced and that's what we have to mindful of um, another thing where you know that i'm very passionate about and i know you are too is small modular reactors yes yes after immigration uh, canada's second best comparative advantage is on nuclear um, many of your listeners, I think, would recall the Can Do program. It's well before our time, but still a myth, a, a thing of legend in Canadian circles, where Canada was a pioneer in civilian nuclear technology. And because of that, Ontario in particular has 92% emissions free power. Yeah. You know, the, you know, we have the second largest nuclear plant in the world in, in Bruce Power uh, on the Bruce Peninsula. Well, th- now it's the first, uh, the largest active in the world because Japan had had shuttered theirs. So we, we have the technology and you might have heard a lot about SMR in the past couple of months, and the reason it's really picking up traction now is a couple of things. The first is obviously we have this worldwide ambition with with uh, emissions-free power, and and that's great. But more in particular, we have um we have these three main plants in in Ontario. We have Pickering, which is going to be closing fairly soon, and there's still some nuances in the timeline. <coughs> we have Darlington, we have Bruce. Those are undergoing a refurbishment process to extend their lifespans and make sure they're safe and reliable. and and everything goes well there. That means we have about 12,000 of some of the most highly skilled nuclear engineers in the world right now in Ontario doing amazing work, of the of the highest tier of skills and, and qualifications. The worst shame, I think, for Ontario right now, or, or what would happen over the next 10 years, is if we don't find something else for them to do here. Because those folks aren't going out of work. They will just leave and
0: be posted. There's poached. lots of work for them in There's the world. There's
1: no shortage of work. China and Russia, uh, Rosatom, are building nuclear assets at a, a very robust clip. In, in developing nations. Obviously, the Western world is not following their trajectory right now, and I think that's a huge mistake. I think that, um, I don't want to overemphasize the role of nuclear. I think some a few too many conservatives do, and they make it seem like nuclear is a panacea to the world's yeah, problems. This is, this is our silver bullet to it, solve the, the issue, yeah. It, it, right now, it contributes about 4, 5% of the world's energy consumption. I would love to see a future where we double it in our lifetimes. Heck, let's triple it. You know, maybe even quadruple it. That would be crazy. But we got to factor in two things. One, a lot of those assets are aging out. So we're naturally seeing a small decline in that. And and there's a limit to how much we can tolerate on, on the conventional scale size of a Bruce Power or Darlington. It's hard to build.
0: Yeah. And um, like the investment is insane. Right?
1: It, it's too risky, right? That's why even if we haven't built one in our lifetime. Like since our parents' generation, yeah. they were the last ones to build them. So we need to. Uh, we need to con- start thinking more aggressively, like, as we are on SMRs. We need to make sure those twelve thousand super talented people have a have some work to do in Ontario for the
0: rest of their lives. For the rest of their lives, and their, and their children's their kids. lives. Yeah,
1: you know, uh, you know, Durham College and, and a lot of our technical schools and so forth. They have s- programs that are creating kids right now with the skill set, and that's what we need, right? We, we this government in particular in Ontario is very big on skills trains and, and and practical things. Let's let's make sure we foster that because you can't just. Code and a nuclear plant. You no. need to have people on the ground. We need to have. This is a very
0: physical asset we're talking it, about. You, you get tired doing
1: it, right? It's, <laughs> yeah. you're not even you know. It's it's not even an auto mechanic or something. I, I don't want to describe, but it, it's incredibly labor intensive work. And where I see a lot of opportunities for us is, is in two things. One is northern develop uh, Northern communities, and, and that's especially First Nations communities. Now, I do want to preface this that we're, we have a lot of work to do with First Nations to make sure that they have buy-in, consent, informed consent, etc. That there there is no shortcuts here. You know, more than anything else, because there's no point showing up and saying, "Hey, you have a diesel generator right now, it's poisoning your community. This is terrible," and we are making slow progress. In Canada, in this place, uh, taking them off of, of diesel generation, but we can't just plop down an, an SMR plant without any consultation no. and just force it in there. <laughs> no, um, and that means we need to start training some of those communities in in SMR technologies. We need to start having them have a financial stake in these technologies as well, uh, and they need to grow with these technologies. The second one is is mining projects as well. Some of those are strong overlap again with the First Nations, and there'll be some projects SMRs that will power a First Nation and a mining plant, and, and that's great. Um, the Active file is is the displacement of our coal generation stations. So as, as you might know, Alberta has a few coal plants. Uh, New Brunswick has a few. Saskatchewan has a few. Those don't make sense just on the sheer economics. Even if we put a pin on climate change and that's bad, uh, the economics don't make sense. It's just more expensive to generate power from coal than it than it is from uh, nuclear. Ideally, like we, can, I can't say that for a fact. No. I can say it is cheaper from modern wind technology. Like, if you were to commission a wind plant now, and Alberta is doing that, Alberta's commissioned some wind that is cheaper than the coal generation. So, uh, but yes, the designs and the cost estimates and the economics of existing technologies from Canada's leading small modular reactor developers strongly suggests and have been verified by the experts that we will be able to produce very low cost power, much lower than we're doing with coal. I'm hopeful we'll get there. The current timeline, we're looking at commercial deployment maybe around 2025, a serious role by 2027. I know that you know people get frustrated by these timelines. Like I want it now, um, but this is probably the last technology I'd want to rush. Yeah, it's ready. Like this yeah. isn't where we take shortcuts. No, know?
0: this is. You have to make sure everything's perfect here. Uh, I I would like you to speak to because someone's brought this up to me before. The fact that nuclear technology has been so siloed in that each country has kind of siloed there's there hasn't been any mass production, mm-hmm. hardly. Can do being a maybe an exception to that to some degree, even though mass production is probably an exaggeration. But why do you think we haven't seen a an assembly line-esque yeah. uh Development good, of nuclear technology. It's a very good question, and I kind of have two answers for that.
1: It's it's a Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki. Um, <laughs> if you may recall, during the Cold War, people were pretty sensitive about nuclear weaponry. It's true. And, it's true, and its ability to you know wipe out all life on, on the planet. Um, so that really got people really kind of focused on the security, yes, yes. safety, and and secrecy around um, nuclear technology. There there was significant efforts to prevent proliferation. Um, only a handful of countries in the world have nuclear weapons, and that's largely worked out okay. I, I'm of the opinion that nuclear tech, nuclear weaponry has has ushered in an era of unprecedented peace since World War II. And uh, but we can put a pin on that. We can debate that later. I think we're on the same page. <laughs> uh, so it, that's and but it we've seen to the present day countries like North Korea, especially uh, Iran, other countries that we would call rogue states um, that have sought to develop their own nuclear weaponry. Uh, for various reasons, and there is naturally a relationship between uh, civilian nuclear power and uh, weaponization
0: of nuclear energy. Although, interestingly enough, not in Canada. Uh,
1: not in Canada. Yes, we yeah. we we hosted some. Uh, to, to, yes,
0: we were. We yeah. you know we had some um, silos. But and that's
1: what SMRs are actually really cool for is that they are much more difficult to uh, to, to to weaponize. Uh, the the nuclear fuel that goes into them. Is, is of it's a lower. Depleted, enrichment. Right? It's depleted. There and there's a variety of there's molten salt reactors, there's there ceramic reactors. Uh you, you know, you should definitely get an engineer to dig into the deeper I don't want to uh, mistake right. here on mechanics. But they are much more diff- much more difficult to to weaponize. And how it effectively works is you'd have a something the size of maybe a small school uh, or a couple of containers ships um, would be assembled on site or, or uh, built in a factory shipped there assembled on site and the fuel will be securely transported there wouldn't be any fuel work there there we wouldn't, wouldn't be store stock any piles, fuel. Yeah, exactly that right so it would be if someone were to raid you know an SMR station they would I don't know get. They wouldn't, I, 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 there's nothing they would be able to do with that resource there would be no weaponization you couldn't ship it out and that's a, that's a, that's probably a question that
0: people would have. So I'm glad you answered it. Yeah,
1: well, you know we, yeah. we, we have uh, we have some SMR clients, and we, we have these conversations, and they come up often. You, know, what are the safety risks here? And um, Canada has a bit more work to. Do. Really, the whole world has to do with storing nuclear waste. Um, it's nobody's really keen on having their community, no matter how um, sparsely populated,
0: to to be but a you, host. You know my opinion on that. Yes, we can
1: shoot them at the space. One day we will. <laughs> and when you have a, a commercially viable transportation method to shoot our nuclear waste in space, I will be the first. You'll to be invest the first. You'll, it. Be, you'll
0: be there. Yeah. Hopefully,
1: you'll also go up twelve percent that day. <laughs> um, you know, and, until then, we—it's actually not obscene or, or unreasonable to continue storing nuclear waste the way we're doing, say by near Bruce. Right. right. We have it's very safe, very secure. And and I get frustrated when we have green activists who are saying, "Oh, that's dangerous. It's gonna you're you're replacing climate change with a whole new problem of nuclear waste." And I look at it and I say, "Well, every year, by depending on which measure you want to use, at least ten thousand people a year die from climate change. You could say a couple of million a year on the upper extreme, depending on what you want to loop into that. Nobody dies from nuclear, nuclear waste. waste. <laughs> that just that doesn't happen, right? It, we have three disasters in the history of humankind. We have Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, and um, Fukushima." pretty contained uh, uh, all things considered I mean more people die from mining coal in China than they do from all those disasters combined that's every year in China right. people die from mining coal so if it frustrates me when people yell no we don't have time we need to act for climate change now nuclear is too dangerous like those aren't mutually what, compatible I positions. always
0: wonder what what is their end game is it I I there's this uh, theory I guess among maybe the more con or conspiratorial people about the green— revol- that they're just anti-human. And I, and I, I sometimes get that vibe. They, they, don't, they don't want any civilization at all. They, there's a, a naturalist tendency to them.
1: Uh, one thing I would— Yeah, you're not wrong. That That's a strain. That's a strain that exists, and that's kind of Extinction Rebellion. There's communities that preach, you know, no children, right? So if you yes. shouldn't have a child. Yes. But it is immoral to have a child. We had that scandal with a some bus, bus ad. Yeah, bus ads in, in B.C., yeah. There was two ads anyways.
0: Uh, but— uh, what I don't want to do. The best gift you can give your child is not to have another yeah, that's, one. I think that's, yeah,
1: that's grim. <laughs> um, we have a very broad range of, uh, on the left or uh, green activists, um, the progressives. That it's it's we have a tendency to, to lump them together as kind of one batch, right? And there really is a very d- huge range of nuance from Michael Moore to Greta to Extinction Rebellion to David Suzuki. Some of them are aligned on various issues. Some of them are not aligned. Um, and they have more infighting than than I guess the right, so to speak, or, or more conservative Probably, forces. Yeah. So yeah, there there is a radical branch that it has a, a faith that civilization has been a mistake. Like we peaked ten thousand pre ice age was human. That was speaking. that was when it was the best Full yeah. equality, right? Nobody had wealth, nobody had poverty. It was like you woke up that morning, you scavenged some berries, and if your objective is is equality, yeah, that's a, you know that's I would say internally sound. If you're
0: I don't know if it is. Like what is your first principle if you believe that barbarism and the lack of civil like what is your first principle at that point? Is is just the no hierarchies, order of things. Right, right. For, for
1: these communities. And an element like I read a lot of I read Jacob and Mag. You know, that's a communist that's a explicitly communist paper. I read a lot of radical left um material to get a sense of where they're coming from and what they want. And and I think there is a growing appreciation for for nuclear as part of the energy solution, um, and and I will be positive in that a lot more moderate people are shifting in that direction. You know, uh, as far as first of all, you know, our, our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and, and Minister of Natural Resources Timo Reagan are both in supportive of of SMR technology, and, 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 and
0: Jason Kenney and, Kenny and uh, Doug Ford. There yeah. seems to be a consensus now.
1: Yeah, we we it, this was a process a memorandum of understanding on SMR signed by uh, Doug Ford. Uh, by Blaine Higgs and by Scott Moe of Saskatchewan and uh, Blaine Higgs of, of New Brunswick. And uh, Jason Kenney signed on in August. And f- we haven't seen as much practical action from the federal government yet, but they have said nice things about it. And right. that for me is a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's
0: that good, it's good when lot. the government is right, saying right. nice things, yes. Uh, th- it's,
1: it's, it's important to have that alignment because you are not going to see this sector thrive in Canada if it becomes a political issue. No. Right? You you can't have, nobody will invest the money you need to invest in SMRs in Canada if an investor worries that every four years you're going to have a different political alignment on
0: nuclear is a good or bad. That doesn't work. So, I mean, this is one of the oldest stories in, I guess, the lobbying slash political staffer world, which is I think this is what all industries have been saying for a long time. We just want certainty. I like, think this is the big problem with things like C69 and and other attempts, perhaps, at appeasement of everyone is that you end up you end up creating a convoluted system that has no certainty
1: yeah. And I, th- I think it's it's every political's fault to some extent because we we like to fight each other, right? right. Like no one's like, no one wakes up like, I've joined this party and I'm going to donate my time and money so I can agree with my political rivals. No, nobody does that. that that's just strange. <laughs> but w- it would be great if we did that more often.
0: Well, I, I, let's go into this whole idea of Canada, idea of Canada's future. I think like we need to get beyond this point of being enemies with one another. Mm-hmm. We're not enemies with one another. We're all Canadians. And while I may be and and yourself conservative in our let's say our familial like we we have a familial attachment to these parties mm-hmm. at this point not because of our parents but because like this is our family. These are yeah. our friends. These are these are the people that we fought beside in election campaigns. The, this these are the people that we have dedicated the democratic process to. This is like our team. Yeah. But just because it's your team doesn't mean that you can't agree. We have to.
1: One of, the, one of the more, I guess, common theories, I don't think it's a radical theory anymore, is, is the idea that because of all the information, the accessibility to voters and the public, politicians have less opportunities to make deals. There was a time when politicians would kind of sit in a room and one guy says, well, this is my community's interest. The other guy says, well, this is my, industri- my industry's interest and so forth. And they hash something out that just kind of works. But it wouldn't be achievable on a piecemeal basis right and that's kind of the the benefit of having large omnibus bills is maybe individually you can't pass that because you wouldn't necessarily get enough support for it but if you tack on a completely unrelated measure that also might not pass on its own together they get through one of the one of the topics that we talked about before was the idea of of Canada's mi-
0: mineral reserves and, yes, and, and yes. You know,
1: rare earth methyl- metals and and are just
0: oh I love endowment. this yeah this the, the the information here folks like this is <laughs> this is top notch stuff for
1: for uh, folks unfamiliar with this um there's the, don't get too lost in the categories there there is no standard for it and that's part of the problem a lot of or all of the modern age technologies we have from smartphones to electric vehicles to wind turbines require tremendous copious quantities of uh, what could be called rare earth metals. Uh, These are things like cobalt, lithium, and those are the two bigger ones. Then they range into much smaller ones like germanium and niobium and and other names that I'm not going to try to recall all of them. And this is a challenging sector because they're called rare earth. Not that they're that rare. A lot of them are actually quite common. It's that if you're digging for iron ore, you could find a patch of earth where it's 5% iron ore. So you have to go through so much to get the right amount of iron. However, with a niobium, it could be 0.01% of the mass you're extracting from the earth could be niobium, so you just need to consume a huge amount of mass. So
0: I like your golf ball analogy. You want to yeah, it's, tell it's something that? about
1: it. I can't remember what what exact element it was, but it was something you would have to melt down 50 SUVs to get one golf ball of a rare metal, uh, and that's a problem. You know, maybe an average.
0: And that's but, just what you have to do. That's just yeah. what you have
1: to do. There's no shortcuts there. You can recycle things, and that's another conversation. But what I wanted to add about the political alignment question is that Canada has a huge, huge wealth of of minerals and metals that are absolutely essential for the uh, transition to a green economy. Right now, a lot of cobalt, cobalt especially for for electric vehicles is, is critical and unavoidable, is mined, about half of it I believe or so forth, in, in the Congo in just tremendously awful conditions. It, it, it's a war zone there, you have children, as slaves, murder, it's used to finance you know, death squads and so forth. So absolutely horrendous, but we don't really have a lot of alternatives for it. So people are turning a blind eye and and You know, we should call corporations to account, but the the alternative question is, all right, fine. You don't want us extracting from the Congo fair. Canada has some, can we extract it here? And all of a sudden you have those same activists. Whoa, 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 no, 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 That That would ruin our environment. We don't want to extract it there. And I think Canada has to have a tough conversation about how much of the world's burden are we willing to carry in supporting the energy transition. One of the bigger things we can do is actually using our massive landmass, the second biggest country in the world, to have a way that is as environmentally sustainable as possible we're never going to be great at it. You, you have to use many, you know, thousands of liters of acid to bleach a chemical for a few pounds of it. Right. But those few pounds are essential to, to, to you know, decarbonize. And I, I think what we can do is is something, my my grand vision on this alignment is we align with the almost the liberals and NDP, the conservatives and the green all at once, and we, we all get something that we want. Conservatives say, hey guys, we'll support the green energy transition. In exchange, you allow us to mine all of these metals in Canada and allow our, Mining industry to really grow because if we're talking about rarer metals, none of them are really going to be extracted on C69. That's just there's no No. point of starting that conversation. Nobody's really proposing it. The other nuance I I, I have to add is very few of these are effectively, uh, except for like lithium and cobalt. You can most of these smaller rare metals you don't extract on their own. They're only a byproduct of a larger mining operation like copper or or uh, or, uh, iron ore, uh, nickel, and so forth, and you get small amounts of that. Right now China dominates that market. They have a monopoly on a lot of these because uh they have no concern in this industry for environmental standards. Zero. They're just they just have huge swaths of um, particularly Western China, that is a, you know, environmentally scarred. It's 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 a it's a dead zone. There's life expectancy on like, you know, people in their forties or fifties. <coughs> you folks are, you know they might wear a mask. That's that's really right. it. Like they're bleaching metal and acid. And, <laughs> and they're, they're wearing nailing. a mask. They yeah. might wear a mask and some goggles, right? So Canada, there are technologies to do a cleaner, but that is expensive. It, the costs go up. And what China can do really well is whenever a, a big competitor rises up, it floods the market with that product and it drives those miners out of business. They have massive stockpiles that we don't even have really good insight on. And it uses this to its geopolitical advantage. We saw in 2010, um, Japan and and China had a dispute over disputed islands in in the uh, between the two countries. And uh, Chinese trawlers, uh, fishermen entered waters that the Japanese claimed, and there was an exchange with the coast guard. So instead of having an actual fight, like we might in the in the old days, uh, China just arbitrarily decided it will no longer e- export a a s- number of essential rare metals to the Japanese Japanese industries to so the American manufacturers. That's it. They they didn't actually say anything. They're like, oh, sorry, we're out. That was that was it. Like there was no. no we don't have any. There was yeah. no big statement. It's not like because you did this with the ships and our fishermen, it's just like we don't have any. Sorry, and this created a crisis in the in the Japanese economy. They started scrambling through this very very opaque market to to you know create materials for the semiconductors, their magnets, and other essential inputs. And it was impossible, right? Because because it didn't exist. It didn't exist, or you couldn't get it anywhere, right? Everything is accounted for. And what happened was. Um, To China's advantage is that a lot of uh, Japanese industrials over the coming years actually migrated their operations to China so that they would have reliable access. China said that even if you're a Japanese factory and your profits go back to Japan, but if you set up your factory here, we'll guarantee— Because they just want jobs. They just want the jobs and the investment and the building of the factories and so forth. And Canada's an opportunity to do something like that. We're not going to be able to compete on the private sector— just letting miners, even if we go buck wild with the regulations and completely strip it down, we're never going to match China. Our labor costs are just higher. Our regulatory cost taxes are higher, et cetera. But what we can do is we can be a strategic supplier of a last resort. You know, we have a very strong Western alliance still of countries that are eager to secure their access to strategic metals, much like we did with uh, OPEC in the, um, well, I guess we, OPEC is a terrible example of this. <laughs> OPEC is a great example of an of a alliance of countries that brought the Western world almost to its knees by controlling this essential resource. Which China is doing. China is doing that right now. And Canada can be part of the solution along with other countries like Australia, which have also sizable mining reserves. America, again, is still massive even for its population. Uh, Brazil and so forth. Latin America is, is a strong resource base where we could develop our natural resources, especially rare earths, not on the market level but as a military strategic consideration. As in we will work with, you know, Japan, Korea, Taiwan and say, for at this fixed price, we can assure you this amount of supply for this many years. We don't really do that because our market works pretty great, like the world copper market or nickel market. Right, you, you don't have to do that, it's just a waste and it never goes well. It's it's uh, it really is government prevention. but all they case, do
0: do it with interestingly with uranium, they have the long term sales versus the, the spot sales, yes, right? yeah. But
1: there's really no reason why anyone will have a spot uranium no. purchase, like you, you'd you have right. to follow up on that guy. Yeah. You can yeah. have a spot <laughs> copper purchase, there's any number of benign reasons, but if you're buying uranium just willy nilly, like we should check it on that yeah. guy, like yeah. I don't know what's happening, we should. Someone should call him up. Um, But you know, if we're looking at some of these minor rare earth metals, we could have a a long term contract thing, and that would help. And the way we'd arrange it, it'll help bridge that political divide. You know, we have the NDP and the Greens not so keen on mining, but they are very keen on ensuring that we have a transition to green
0: energy. Right? If we want to, and we need these for that transition,
1: we absolutely need them. It's just it's not a oh we'd be nice to have. Like you cannot develop a wind turbine without. Um, Tungsten, right? You you, you need sizable amounts and so forth. Um, The the interesting example, uh, there's a lot of good literature on this, is that during World War I, Britain continued, had blocked export of some of the most obvious uh, rare earth, uh, not rare earths, some of the most obvious industrial metals to uh, Germany, like you couldn't ship ore or steel or, or copper. But things like tungsten, which Germany actually innovated ahead of Britain and became essential in their armaments, allowed them to use a lot less steel. We're still exporting them willy-nilly. Like there's not a consideration, right? right? There's right. we don't have really good thinking on how countries use strategic resources to their advantage. I mean, uh, Stalin was was shipping oil to to Hitler the moment of Operation Barbarossa kicking off, right? Historically, Western powers in particular have not really, or any power has not really underappreciated the full capacity of essential metals or, or other supplies in, in their geopolitical alignment. And I think Canada can fulfill also our foreign policy goals and playing a bigger role there. We're never going to lead by assembling a massive army, nor do we no, want to.
0: No, I, I don't. That's I not don't, the Canadian so, way. That's not
1: the Canadian way. But we can do some really creative stuff on the side and it also might create a bunch of jobs here too, which would be pretty <laughs> swell. And they can create royalties and, oh, and help pay for schools. I love schools. it. I so love I it. A lot of things line up in my <laughs> plan. I, I see no holes
0: here. I, I feel like there is. A, this is a well-constructed idea. No, so... um. If uh, any of the listeners have questions about this, uh, I'll be sure to put your email in the. Uh, yeah, put my Twitter on there. I'll put, put your Twitter and Twitter on there. I get people a lot can of people can tweet um, on. Yeah, you do get a lot of emails. <laughs> yeah. um, so to, just to conclude, I think I, what I get excited about what you're saying mm-hmm. is that there are real, tangible, practical. And as we t- I talked about in a late, earlier po- podcast, ca- practicality is a Canadian virtue. Mm-hmm. Uh, practical ways for Canada to transition out of this and become even better than we are now. Yeah, even more organized, even more helpful to the world.
1: If I could have one thesis to conclude this, it would be absolutely to agree there. And and how I think governments can get there, both in the provincial and federal level, is. The federal government here is really keen on tinkering with the nitty-gritty of handing some money to this company or that company. Startups of all scales, funding research, and funding R&D is important. I, I, I don't want to diminish that in the slightest. We need to do more of that. How we can have actually a simpler solution for these problems is just to do central procurement. Say, I want to purchase this much hydrogen at this volume, at this price, for example, for this period of time. Investors will line up. The reason that investors aren't lining up right now isn't because they can't get a $100,000 grant to like you know hire no, a couple of no. engineers. It's because will somebody purchase my hydrogen if I make it here? And the consumers uh, on the consumption side also aren't buying it because they're like, well, why would I invest in a hydrogen fleet if I'm not sure my hydrogen is going to be produced? I need to know that production is going to be there. So a lot of these technologies, hydrogen, SMRs, and so forth, becomes a chicken or the egg problem. And we simply cannot lean back on saying, free market, free market, free market, it's going to work out. Yeah, it will work out because China's building it right now and then the free market will- Will destroy us. <laughs> buy that technology <laughs> yeah, from China. Just, at a the free market
0: will just pass us yeah, by. <laughs> exactly. All
1: the jobs will be there. All the R&D will be there and then we can purchase it from them and that's the free market, right? We we didn't have the free market when we built any of the other technologies we're talking about. And, and I think it's it's a bit lazy to just say that's the solution. I think the challenge is finding out where is the right role for government at what stage in the technological evolution at what level of funding at what level of commitment and what kind of risk does the government to take on to break through some of these technologies and, and allow Canada to lead and succeed um, because it's it's I don't think it's the answer is subsidizing everything that moves I don't think the answer is subsidizing nothing at all uh, there's something in the middle and I think that's going to be the real challenge over the next couple of years say maybe five, ten years can Canada find that sweet spot um, and I think a lot of the you know, when we have this conversation in twenty years, I'm hoping to look back on that and be like, "Yes, we did. We we figured it out." Because if we if we didn't, we'll be speaking in Mandarin.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you know, and my pronunciation is not great, uh, so it'll be tricky. It's a more complicated language.
1: It is. There's a lot more characters. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you very much for joining us. I, I appreciate and, the invitation. Uh, thank you. We'll be. I'm sure you'll be coming on again uh, in the future as we talk maybe about the Ring of Fire and what yes. Canada could do on that front.
1: I would love to. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Canadian Story. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at TheCadStory. That's The C-A-D Story. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Let's work together to remind Canadians how great their country is.